This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware, and I am so glad to be back. I know it's been a while. I was on travel with my family and then you know, just been working to get through 2019, wrap up some loose ends, try and think about uh, and plan for the future, and, and just haven't been able to uh, to get an episode recorded. But we have a, a pretty significant one today. We're going to get caught up on a lot of what we haven't been able to cover with the campaign. I'm recording this on Thursday night, the debate just wrapped up, so we're going to do a segment on the debate and then have some comments about impeachment and Trump's visit with Christian music stars. But just to catch you up, some significant things uh, have happened in the race since our last episode. First, Beto's out. We know that. Senator Kamala Harris dropped out. And we've talked quite a bit about Senator Harris on the show, so I'm not going to recap all of it, but uh, Senator Harris dropped out uh, basically after a New York Times article that went into significant turmoil and questions in her campaign. Uh, I think it was the right move. I, I think she saw that she didn't have a, a path forward in this race. I do think she's going to learn from it. I think she'll be back either to run for the White House at some point in the future or, I, I, you know, I, I think we could see someone like Senator Harris uh, lead the Democratic caucus in the Senate. I uh, could see someone with her experience running for governor of California. Uh, either way, she's going to be a significant figure in the Democratic Party. She just couldn't get a solid message, a solid justification for why she was running for uh, president. Uh, and, and that really undermined uh, her campaign along with some of the sort of tactical mistakes that we've discussed on earlier episodes. The second thing I wanted to discuss, this is the Faith 2020 podcast, and we've talked quite a bit about Mayor Pete Buttigieg as well. In a previous episode, we commented on the fact that Mayor Pete has talked about faith a lot. Uh, As we've said, I mentioned a few strategic reasons why that was happening. One of the reasons I said is it's one of the few sort of potential entrees that are clearly available to him to try and reach uh, black voters. Well, uh, just in the last couple of weeks, the Judge campaign has put up a $2 million ad buy, a $2 million television ad buy in South Carolina. Listen to this ad. In our White House, you won't have to shake your head and ask yourself, whatever happened to I was hungry and you fed me? I was a stranger and you welcomed me. When I say we've got to unify the American people, it doesn't mean pretending that we're all the same. It means unifying around issues from wages and family leave to gun violence and immigration. The hope of an American experience defined not by exclusion, but by belonging. I'm Pete Buttigieg and I approve this message. It's a 30 second ad, Uh, 10 seconds in, he's citing from uh, Matthew 
Uh, and this is running in South Carolina. It, it's reminiscent of similar ad that Hillary Clinton ran in 2016 as she was preparing to go uh, into an important contest contest against Bernie Sanders. And for those who uh, might remember the ad, you know, you, you remember uh, basically showed Secretary Clinton walking into a cafe. She comes upon a, a, a pastor who has his Bible open. She notices, oh, goodness, you haven't opened the 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> I know 1 Corinthians 13. And, and the, the ad is basically the pastor saying, I can't believe she knew what 1 Corinthians 13 was. Uh, I mean, that that's South Carolina in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, the, the, Mayor Pete won't be running that ad in New Hampshire. I would guess uh, uh, S- uh, Secretary Clinton wasn't running that uh, ad in New Hampshire, to my knowledge. Uh, but in South Carolina, you're going to do that. I don't think Pete's going to, you know, I'm sure the campaign's hoping to, to you know, if, if they could get 10% of the African-American vote, if they could get 15, they'd be happy. But, but I think a lot of this is about trying to build up some level of trust, some level of experience, so that if he does end up being the nominee, uh, that that there's something to build on, that he could take that into the general. Uh, of course, Pete becoming the nominee, though still very much a possibility, uh, is less seems less likely now, in my view, than it was two weeks ago. He's still holding on in Iowa. He's leading in Iowa, which is important. Important not just for him, but for several other candidates as we'll discuss. But his national numbers have dropped. I think he's being taken back down to earth. It's really indicative of something that we've seen throughout this race, which is, yes, there are significant upsides to not having a huge political record. One of the downsides is that you don't have a lot of trust with voters. Voters don't know you that well. So, yeah, you could kind of spark, be the fresh face, uh, get some buzz like Beto did, like Senator Harris did at one point, like Mayor Pete is kind of still in the middle of now. The question is, is uh, when the attacks come, when the critiques come, do voters feel like they know you well enough that those attacks don't uh, immediately take you back down? Uh, we've seen, of course, the opposite for Biden. Like, clearly, there are downsides to him having to defend past votes and that kind of thing. But he's also been extremely resilient. Uh, and and uh, we continue to see that today. He's still leading national polls. South Carolina, he's up by 10, 20 points. Uh, and so we're going to see these dynamics play out. Before the end of the year, our next episode, I'm going to give a state of the race overview uh, like we did previously. I thought it would be a good way to send us into 2020, just an overall state of the race. Where are the individual campaigns? Who is poised to strike at the right moment, become the nominee? And we'll do that on the next episode. Uh, so I won't go through overviewing the campaigns now. There is one latest campaign update, which is that we just finished a Democratic debate, which I think was the best debate so far in terms of drawing distinctions, being helpful to voters, clarifying some things. I thought the moderators did a pretty good job. I thought the questions were really insightful. And so we're going to discuss the debate in the next segment. And I have my debate watch partner, who's my partner in many other things. Melissa's here. We're going to discuss the debate together. It's going to be a blast. So when we come back, we're going to discuss the Democratic debate uh, with, with Melissa Ware. All right. We'll be back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast.
We're back. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. We're going to discuss the Democratic debate, only it's not just going to be me. Uh, I just finished watching the debate, as I do basically all the debates, with my wife, Melissa. Uh, Melissa is a consultant. She's my business partner. Uh, she was previously served as head of society for the British Council. Uh, she is uh, an expert on European affairs, European politics. She, she's also very good on American politics, even though she'd push back on that a bit. But we've been watching enough of these things. We thought we'd bring you uh, one of the conversations that's, you know, like a conversation we have uh, every every night. Melissa, it's good to have you on the Faith 2020 podcast. Thanks. This is unexpected. It is unexpected. I asked you about three minutes ago to join me on this thing. Look, it was a, it was an interesting, fiery debate. I think the limited, so there were only seven candidates on the stage this time, and I thought it really opened up space for Andrew Yang, for Amy Klobuchar to play a bit more. I think it made even more clear that Tom Steyer has no business being on that stage. Uh, I'm glad he spent money towards important causes. I'm glad his heart's in the right place. He has no business being on the debate stage, no business sort of buying his way uh, uh, onto the debate stage and into the primary. And then when we look at the top four candidates right now in terms of polling, I thought Bernie had his worst night uh, so far, which is not to say he tanked, but Bernie's usually a pretty consistent debater. I thought he had some really significant missteps um, that that going to make impressions with voters who watched. Uh, they might not be sort of viral moments, so I don't know how much they'll hurt among people who aren't uh, who didn't directly see the debate or are going to be watching extensive clips. But I thought I thought Bernie kind of kind of suffered a bit tonight. Joe Biden was strong. I want to say it was a breakout night, but he doesn't need a breakout night. He's in national polls. Uh, no one really attacked him. I mean, he got touched a little bit on fundraising, but, but he was able to just kind of be in the back, uh, in the background while everyone was going after Mayor Pete. I mean, it was incredible. And we were talking about the fact, you know, this is kind of an ideal situation for the vice president. He's leading national polls. He's up 10, 20 points in South Carolina, yet because Mayor Pete has seen a bump in Iowa and is now leading in Iowa, according to recent polls, it was Mayor Pete who was taken incoming from everybody. I mean, it was incredible. It was it was the first time I've seen Senator Warren really lay into anybody on the stage, and she clearly had opposition research that she was ready to, to roll out. In terms of winners, you know, I think Biden, I think Amy Klobuchar, and, you know, we've talked about this, Melissa. I don't think Andrew Yang is going anywhere. But the fact that he keeps on getting better, the fact that he, I think, is speaking on a different wavelength than the other candidates and and I think reaching people, uh, a certain segment of voters in a way that other candidates just aren't. I'm interested to see how high Andrew Yang's ceiling can go. Like, is he at his ceiling now or is his ceiling eight, 10 percent of the national vote? Uh, what, what did you think? What did you think of the debate? What were the big standout sort of moments for you? Well, I'm just really grateful that we're now down to fewer candidates because by virtue, by logic, everybody gets more time to speak. Moderators can actually let candidates spar and talk back and forth to one another without worrying that, oh, we need to jump to commercial and we have to get to six more candidates on this single question. And so I think it's about time that the American people get to actually 
hear some disagreement amongst the Democrats. Now, I don't think this debate got too deep into the weeds for that, but it was a start, and I found that to be refreshing. Yeah. I completely agree with you, essentially, on most of what you just said. Um, I would say that Klobuchar had a fantastic night. And like I was saying to you earlier, when we were sitting on the couch watching, I was thinking, I think there's quite a few people who will have seen her tonight or who are going to go look her up, go to her website and think, huh, I haven't looked at her before because I was, you know, thinking about what other, some other candidate that, you know, had previously been on the stage or had been looking at Warren or somebody else um, who might actually go and look her up tonight. If not, they might just go up and look up the, uh, what is it, the wind cave in South Dakota? <laughs> the wind cave. Hey, I, that wind cave better watch out because it's that so many tourists are coming it's to South Dakota. Like, it's going to be like Area 51. They're just going to have people coming up out of the woodwork. They're gonna Everyone's going to want to see the wind cave. I know. I, you know, you wonder if it's going to be open on, you know, Christmas Eve or Christmas. They're going to be like, oh, I wish this was better timing. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so Melissa's referring to a moment where, uh, so one of the big hits on uh, Mayor Pete, was Elizabeth Warren laid into him for hosting a fundraiser in a wine cave that was like full of crystals. I think she was referring to this this wine cave has a famous how do you pronounce Swarovski? Swarovski. Swarovski. Yeah, Swarovski. Well, um, <laughs> Swarovski uh, uh, crystal chandelier that's apparently famous. I was reading about it. Uh and and uh and Amy Klobuchar interjects, you know, like, I don't know. I've never been to a wine cave, but I have been to a wind cave, the wind cave in South Dakota. And I recommend you go. It was it was one of like several. Sometimes when Senator Klobuchar delivers a line, there's just like a self-consciousness to it that is off-putting. A lot of the time when she delivers a line, there's a self-consciousness to it that is endearing. And that was one of those like endearing, like self-conscious, like, oh, I'm delivering a line now <laughs> um, that, that I was working on. Uh, so it, it was a, it was a, it was a really strong night for Senator Klobuchar. And as we've said on the show before, Senator Klobuchar is not the kind of candidate who's going to sustain four or five, six months in a demo, in a, in a heated contested democratic primary of having to like, uh, create news, uh, and free media on end. Senator Klobuchar shot in this race, which I think she is on track for, even though it's, you know, it's like, you know, the death star shot, like it's not an easy shot. Um, is is to build to invest in Iowa and then in in January early February have a moment in one of the several debates that are going to be coming up or some kind of speech some kind of major thing where she just sparks at the right moment and she catches uh voters interest and she can sustain that for the 2 to 3 months that it could possibly take to to wrap up the nomination but I think she she firmly kept herself in in this race. Uh, I will say I missed I missed Senator Booker. Uh, Same, I, yeah. In terms of the candidates who are still in the race, he was the one candidate who I was going to mention to you that I I really missed because I think 
he does differ from some of the other candidates in significant ways, especially in education, where a debate like this could have brought those things out and presented some new sort of dynamics for him as a candidate. Yeah, com- completely agree. I think it would have been interesting at this stage for him to talk about education, for him to talk about the op-ed he wrote on charter schools um, and and test some interesting Interesting ideas in this primary context in a way that I think would have been helpful to him. And hopefully he, he's able to get back on the debate stage. And just one, one last comment to sort of wrap up the Democratic primary sort of conversation for this episode, which is, you know, Deval Patrick has not sparked <laughs> to, to, to say the least. Uh, I, I did kind of expect that if he was going to jump in at this late stage that he had some cards up his sleeve. Uh, Eric Holder endorsement, something along those lines. We just haven't seen that. Uh, He's been spending time in New Hampshire, but I find it hard to – I'm just not seeing it right now from his campaign infrastructure, even though, look, if this man found a way onto a debate stage or if he found his way into the press in a a really uh, significant way, I think he's the most talented politician out of the field uh i i I, if voters got a chance to look at him he'd he'd be a he'd be a fearsome uh candidate it just doesn't look like he's going to have that opportunity which you know obviously he had some family situations but you know it's uh it's not the system's fault that, that he he jumped in late and and uh it may be sort of like the you know the candidacy that could have happened but just uh, won't Melissa? Any last kind of observations about the about the debate in particular, or where you think things are going from here? Well, I guess I have one question for you that popped into my head that I think is an age old question, especially for Democrats and who they tend to nominate for presidency, at least in the in the modern age. Yeah, is with Andrew Yang. I mean, you're talking about him and how he's impressed tonight, and you and I agree that his team has definitely been studying the sort of comms angles of, you know, typical political campaigns. And he just whipped out a, a lot of good messaging tonight. Yeah, but great here's messaging. the thing. He's not an elected official, has never been elected to office. Right. With this ceiling question, there has to be a ceiling because oh, Democrats yeah. usually, textbook-wise, don't nominate people who have never held elected office. That would be very strange, despite the fact that he is an ideas person. But as I'm constantly saying in foreign policy making, it's sausage making. Domestic politics is the exact same thing. It's sausage making. It's so complex that you really do want your person, especially the number one person, the presidency of the United States, have some sort of, you know, deep political acumen, whether yeah. it's mayor or senator or something. And I mean we know that our current president yeah. doesn't have that right. either. But at least on the Democratic side, usually they choose someone with at least a little bit of experience. They do, and it's because Democrats, you know, Republicans can run someone without any political experience because the Republican line has been the government doesn't work. We got to make government smaller. It's been basically a negative message about government. So the question of experience has been well, if they happen to have someone who's experienced, they'll act like it matters. But but sort of the standard hasn't been uh, too too important over there. They ha- there has been 
this sort of preference for governors as opposed to to senders, but that's been more of like an executive CEO decision making thing. I think not so much a. Uh, uh, this person knows how government works. On the Democratic side, we, we the Democrats do think government is important, uh, can do important things. Uh, and so government experience has been important. It's why I do think he absolutely has a ceiling. I think my question is, is his ceiling at 4% nationally, or which is, is about 10%? where it, or is it 10%? Right. And if it's 10%, whose numbers are he, uh, whose he numbers is he at? eating away at? Like, like yeah, he's not going to win the nomination, but but no one has dared to attack Andrew Yang because they all want his voters when he gets out, and he just hasn't been a threat. If he starts pulling at ten percent, and he is polling among young people, he he's got the third highest total. Right. He like, but he, young he's, people he's are going to show up. Well, that's always been the question. They showed up for Obama in two thousand eight. They showed up for Bernie. Like so, so Bernie, for instance, I think he's looking at this and saying. Gosh, this guy's eating into my 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 people. Like like young people are supposed to be with me. So does Bernie like does Bernie go after Andrew? I mean, I do or, think it's a, it's a it's it's something that's going to be interesting to see if it develops. My if I had to if I had to predict, I don't think it is going to develop. I think Andrew Yang probably has a uh, a ceiling of five percent nationally, and any Democratic nominee and any Democratic president is going to want to find some. I, some people were tweeting today, a cabinet secretary. I don't think he's going to be a cabinet secretary. Maybe commerce, but or small business administration. But I, I actually really doubt that. What I think would happen is they create a a role for Andrew Yang to to lead a council on twenty first. 21st century economic sort of transformations or big sure. tech. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so, um, so what were, what were you, uh, what were you going to say? Yeah. Well, I was just thinking the final thing with this is that I agree with you. I think his ceiling is probably around five or 6%. But the thing is, is that if he were to get more around 10%, do you think besides attacking, do you think these other candidates might start taking, leeching some of his ideas, which is what happens a lot, especially in this, de- this particular democratic race? With everybody somewhat looking the same because somebody comes up with a palace idea and, you know, tweaks a little bit and then loads it up on their website. Yes. So, and as you know, uh, so on our Substack and Melissa and I run a Substack, for those of you who don't know, Melissa and I run a Substack uh, channel, reclaiminghope.substack.com, regular posts every week. You can sign up to be a subscriber, and we'd love for you to do that. It's something that we put a lot of work into each week. And a lot of jokes. And a lot of jokes. A lot of joke, a lot of work and a lot of jokes go into it. And so we'd love to have you sign up there. But I, I did a post there on Andrew Yang, and one of the things I said was I think he is the most like eminently he, – he better trademark all of his stuff because his intellectual property is like the hottest ticket in this primary. Like the way he talks about issues, you go on Yang's website – and it's all like, you know, for all the talk about Mayor Pete being the, the consultant, Andrew Yang's website talks you through the human problem, the values that are going to dis- guide our decision making, and then the, the policy that flows out of the values. Like no one is talking in that kind of like clear way that like you could go to the website and be like, oh, well, this this makes sense. And it isn't just gobbledygook. The other thing I like about it is he has – Policy ideas that don't, that seemingly don't have any kind of constituency. <laughs> like he cares about ideas that are 
like poll tested to be like, well, if you propose this, you may be able to peel off 5% of this group. It's just like, oh, he thinks this would be kind of cool or helpful or good. And I, I, I like that. I think that's refreshing. It's interesting, except for once you actually have to govern, it could all fall apart, which is why he is so appealing. It's because if anything ever really sounds logical to you in politics, <laughs> you should really doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> That because is... <laughs> politics is sausage making and none of it should ever make sense for anything to actually work. <laughs> I think that's where we need to end it. And <laughs> oh man, that's like that's a good line. Uh, M- Melissa just breaking hearts as usual. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> All right. Hey, Melissa, thanks for joining me. Uh, this is randomly exciting. I did not know I'd be doing this up until about 32 minutes ago. Glad to have you on. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> this is a Faith 2020 podcast. When we get back, I'm going to uh, talk about Trump, at which point Melissa's definitely leaving the room. Yes, please. <laughs> Faith 2020 podcast. We'll be back after the break. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting. A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. We're back. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. That was fun. I think we may need to have that last guest uh, back on the podcast. All right. To close out the show, we're going to move the conversation to uh, President Trump. Uh, There's a lot we could talk about, but I want to cover two topics. The first, so many of y'all on social media have been asking me uh, about my opinion uh, and perspective on uh, this meeting the Trump White House put together with Christian music artists. And I, I do have thoughts on that. So I want to talk about that and then follow that up with uh, what I think is a related topic. All right. For those of you who aren't aware of, of this story, earlier this month, the White House, uh, principally from what I can gather, Paula White, who now is a paid staffer uh, for the White House, working in the Office of Public Liaison, organized a briefing for Christian worship artists, Christian music artists. Now, briefings are par for the course. You know, I've organized dozens, if not hundreds of briefings when I was at the White House. It's what the Office of Public Liaison uh, does. It's what it's really, really a big part of what it's what it's meant to do. So that, you know, uh, briefings, fine. Briefings with religious leaders, fine. It's not the hill I'm going to die on. N- not the, I do think some of the critiques of the Christian artists that were there generally that were way over the top. I saw people posting online that anybody who went, any of the Christian music artists that went to the White House aren't real Christians, that that just by going they were, you know, complicit with this administration. And look, you can make those arguments, but but just be aware that those are the same arguments that have been thrown against any Christian that's engaged with any Democrat over the last 40 years, 50 years. So if you, if you want to, if, if you want to throw that back and sort of use, use that 
against other folks, I don't think the argument's completely invalid. It, it's not one I would make. I, I, I don't think it's wise, and I don't think it has a lot of foresight. You know, I, I, I don't think uh, folks are. Um, I don't think folks want to hold the line uh, that they're they're drawing right now. And again, I get the arguments. This is an extraordinary president presidency. I, I just that, that that's not the hill I want to die on. So you know, I, I'm fine with folks accepting White House invitations generally. Now let's talk a little more specifically, right? So this was a briefing. Christian music artists, and I'll have a word about why the Trump administration is focusing on Christmas mu- music artists, but just to give you a sense of how these briefings happen, right? So, so it's actually, there are distinctions. What it looks like from the outside, what happened is, you know, Paula White organized this thing. Paula White was basically the, the chair and the organizer bringing in the group. She was also working for the White House. So she, it looks like she set the agenda and also convened the group. Now, sometimes that's the way it would work, right? That makes a lot of sense. White House staff sends out the invite, people come. I will say other times in meetings I held together, uh, we would identify chairs that were leaders among the constituency we were bringing in, and an agenda would be planned together. And maybe that happened here. I'm just, you know, I'll, I'll be very clear about what is speculation and, and what I could speak about definitively. Speculating looks like, these folks came, didn't know what to expect, and uh, uh, and and Paul White organized this thing. What happens at these briefings is administration officials come in, very important looking folks, tell you about different things the government is doing, and all of it is directed towards that audience. So they're not going to tell you about things that you're not going to like unless you put it on the agenda. What they're going to bring up is the stuff that they think you'll like, and they'll have they'll bring in. Administration officials who are going to be resonant with your group. They're not going to bring in folks who don't know anything about you. They're going to bring in folks who are resonant with your group and who are going to talk in a way that can resonate with your group. And so, you know, they, it sounds like, received briefings on what the government's doing on international development programs. What the government's doing on trafficking, yeah, you know, saying this is what this is what Trump, President Trump, is doing. So these Christian music artists who, you know, because they're Christian music artists, are interacting with a, a broader set of evangelicals than you know that than a lot of other folks the Trump administration is talking to. Probably going in thinking, guys, don't know what to expect. Some of my friends think this guy is evil incarnate. And then they hear from these administration officials that uh, there's something called the summer food program and the government's working with faith-based groups to feed hungry people. Uh, we're fighting human trafficking and uh, uh, the president requested this m- amount of money in the budget uh, and Ivanka's really taking the lead. We even have a paid family policy and that, that's good. And not only that, we're protecting religious freedom. Uh, we're protecting uh, uh a free exercise, and uh, we're, we're pro-life. We're getting all these pro-life protections. In. So we care about those on the margins. Uh, we care about Christians and making sure that you can continue to play worship music wherever you want and no one's going to silence you. And 
Uh, to show you that, we're even going to let you worship right here in the White House because we love you and we just think it would be wonderful. And so they put on a worship concert in, in the White House. And, you know, you saw these videos going around and it's a powerful thing. I, I don't and I, I write in my book that the, the, the President Obama would hold the Easter prayer breakfast. And it, as a Christian, it was meaningful to me to be in a room with a bunch of Christian leaders uh, uh when it was, you know, not to, not to be underhanded here, but when, but just to, just to state it, when it was the Obama White House, uh, for the Easter prayer breakfast, it was Christian leaders, uh, on all sides of the political spectrum, uh, Southern Baptists and Episcopalians and people who voted for Obama, people who did not vote for Obama. It's a little different in this ministry, but it was, that was for me, that was part of the power. You saw all these Christians. Singing "Great is Thy Faithfulness" alongside the president and cabinet secretaries—it was, it was it was a powerful thing, and it was powerful not because I was because uh, uh, it was a political thing. Uh, it was powerful for me personally because I was like, "Wow, the the praise to the God I worship is going up in this case in the East Room of the White House." Well, uh, that that there's a there's a there's a power to that. Well, these are worship artists. This is what they, so like, what a, what an amazing, you know, it just hits them right, right between the eyes. And, and they, they're thinking to themselves, look, I'm, I'm bringing my whole life's been about worship and can't believe God would bring me to the point where at the center of power, I would be able to lift up the name of Jesus. So the briefing ends and the White House team says, to Carrie Job and Brian Houston, which you'll notice the videos they put out weren't of Lee Greenwood, <laughs> you know, like weren't weren't uh, weren't like people that everyone knew for sure were Trump folks. They they asked young, you know, apolitical Carrie Job. And, and Hillsong, you know, Bieber's, you know, Hillsong, Brian Houston to, to, oh, to, you know, and I'm sure they just told them, and again, speculate, but I'm sure, and, you know, speculation based on, I've been around politics for a long time. You know, I'm sure they just told them, look, you don't, we're not going to tell you what to say. You know, would just love for you to reflect on what you heard and saw today. Uh, and I don't know what's going through their minds. Maybe, maybe the folks who recorded videos meant to send a quasi endorsement of Trump. But if I had to guess, especially for, for Carrie, you know, she's thinking, look, these folks have hosted me. I've had an amazing day. I've heard about things I didn't expect to hear. I didn't know the government was doing this stuff. Uh, so, so I, I'm not going to say I'm voting for the guy. I'm not going to tell Christians they should support him. But, and, and you watch the video, and she's basically, you know, there were really nice people here. You know, our our country's doing wonderful things for the marginalized. You know, she she said like in in her like you have to in her mind she's I'm you know it's like I'm being gracious. I'm saying things that I believe. I'm saying the truth. I had a good time. I heard good things. I may not be saying. Other things I'm concerned about or other things that people I know are concerned about, but like they're hosting me. They're, they're doing this. So they record the video 
then on the White House channel, not White House, you know, faith outreach channel, main White House channel with millions and millions of followers, send out these videos of these worship artists worshiping in the White House and of Carrie Job and Brian Houston, basically, uh, especially in Brian's case, you know, g- giving these really, really positive messages with the implication being whether, whether they intended or not. And, and this is, this is part of the point I want to make. You just can't, can't be naive. And maybe they weren't being naive. Maybe they were being super strategic. Maybe I'm frankly like giving them too much credit for, uh, uh, for, for, for being naive. But if they think that they could record a video to, for use by the Trump White House, uh, and not have sort of, uh, n- not have it be taken as an endorsement that they'd be able to like sell. Look, I, I was just reflecting on this visit. And, you know, if a Democratic administration had invited me, then we would have done and said the same blah, blah, blah. No, like we, we now have years of seeing Trump as a politician and, 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 and how th- this White House, uh, uses folks, how, how they deal with religion. And so even if these folks were going in naively, like I would just say, you, you got to seek counsel. If you're a religiously, look, I, I'd never put down a fiat on engaging government, especially if you think that you could, if you think you're called to do it. And if you think that you have a responsibility and if you think like you could make a difference. Uh, but if you don't have much political history, if you don't, if you haven't engaged with political leaders often. You just got to have people in your circle who have. For some, for for some, for some pastors, some worship leaders, they reach out to me. But it doesn't have to be me. You just have to have people who who've been around here who can tell you what questions to ask, tell you what your rights are, and, and the fact that you know the White House doesn't have the right to dictate to you everything that's happening and going on, and pointing out to you that. There is no such thing as recording an apolitical video for the White House. The White House is a political institution, especially less than a year out from an election. So, like all all that all that stuff is is part of what's happening. So, you know, just to put a bow on, you know, that side of the conversation, that part of the conversation. Uh, I, I understand folks who are saying these folks should have never showed up there. We know how this White House works, that they're going to issue a press release about everything. They're going to seek to push folks as far as they can go. They're going to try and claim support that they don't really have, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, just by going, you're complicit. I err on the side of uh, not drawing that line and thinking instead that folks just need to be wiser. Like, look. If, if you're surprised that the government is helping to feed people and combating human trafficking, work that happened under the Obama administration, work that happened under Bush, work that happened under Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, then you probably shouldn't be recording political videos for the White House. Like you, you just may not, that may not be your gifting. Okay. <laughs> like you, you may be, you may be out of your league on that one. Which is fine. That's not your calling. That's not what you're there to do. And l- let me just say, I'll say with Br- Brian Hughes, I was like, why is this guy talking like a politician? You watch that video and it's like a stump speech. 
All right, I, I, I better move on. The, the, the real question for me and where I want to put my focus, because I, do, I, I don't know any of these, I don't know the Christian artists who are there with, with a couple exceptions. I don't know. I don't know the hearts with which they they went. Don't know their intentions and their fellow Christians. So for folks just showing up at a meeting, I just don't. That's not what I want to give airtime to. And frankly, we have enough Christians who are doing more egregious things that we have a duty to speak out about. I'm not about sort of bashing Christians whenever we get the opportunity. And I think folks need to be cautious about that. Where I want to focus is the fact what this administration. Is doing. They know what they're doing when they share videos of worship in the White House. They know what they're doing when they claim that Christians feel freer than ever before. They know that they are trying to facilitate idolatry. They they know it. And Christians have a responsibility to reject it. But let's be honest about what the Trump White House is is doing here. And let's be honest about why they're looking at Christian music artists. Donald Trump, you'll notice, where is the core of their of their event, their public evangelical support? Televangelist preachers, uh, Jerry Falwell, and Robert Jeffress, who basically operate in their own fiefdoms. This White House specializes in picking off evangelicals with no accountability. That no one appointed or gave a mandate to to speak on politics. Who, who appointed Eric Metaxas to speak for evangelicals on anything? Who does he represent? Like, who does he have a responsibility? Like, no, no one. And yet they pick out these sort of, sort of media shock jock guys and say, these are our evangelicals. And the, the media apparently is happy to go along. Evangelicals who don't support Trump seem to be happy to go along because we act like Jerry Falwell is someone he's not. And I'll, I'll get to this a little, little later on. What I do think they did recognize, and I actually, so when I tweeted about this, I, I, I said, and it was true, I had just been in a conversation a few weeks earlier with someone who uh, is a decision maker when it comes to some of these issues. And you know, I said, you know, one of the areas in which the Trump administration has grown when it comes to evangelicals is with the with the artist set, which has generally been less political, less politically engaged. And uh, because their their artists has also tended to be, and obviously this is a generalization, but you know, everything's gonna be a generalization when you're talking about a whole group. You know, the Christian artist class generally when it comes to evangelical leadership has actually tended to be a little, little more progressive, but also less political. And so I said that they're they're really making strides here. And then this you know, this meeting happened. Well, one of the reasons why I was paying attention to this is because Trump sees what I just said, that Christian music artists uh, have their own, generally have their own fiefdoms, don't have a board of directors they answer to, uh, generally don't have elders they have to answer to, though there are some exceptions of these like church-based groups. But generally, these are folks with who operate on their own. Uh, they don't have any institutional responsibility, again, generally. But so, you know, they're not... Uh, they don't have to think about if I uh, if I take this action, 
you know, if I speak out politically, how is it going to affect my institution? How is it going to affect the people I serve? Like, like just the whole decision-making metrics for Christian music artists, for these televangelists, uh, preachers, for these people who operate their own fiefdoms that are just never going to be threatened. You know, Robert Jeffers has it. Like, no, no one's kicking him out of First Baptist. And th- this is why they're going after Christian music artists. And because they're less political, again, they could go to a briefing, be told about everything the government's doing with human trafficking, and go, this is the best thing I've ever heard. Which leads me to the last topic of conversation I, I want to have on this episode, which is uh, on Wednesday, the uh, House voted to impeach President Trump. Uh, we'll see now. There's been a little debate whether Speaker Pelosi will send the articles over to the Senate. I, I haven't heard a good reason why that wouldn't be uh, why it would make sense or not be ludicrous for the House to pass something and not to send it over to the Senate. Uh, I think that would not only backfire politically, but uh, unless I hear some better explanation that helps me to make sense of it, I, I just I just think it's the, the wrong move. If the point is we got to uh, we have an we have an accountability to uphold the Constitution and go through with this process. Then you don't just say, oh, "Well, well, the Senate's not going to handle it the way we want, so we're not going to send the articles over there." Like that kind of kind of uh, works against works against the the rationale. And so that happened. But then today, Christianity Today puts out an editorial calling for the removal of President Trump. Uh, the editorial says, you know, whether it's by impeachment or by election is a prudential matter. Uh, but the impeach- impeachment hearings made clear that Trump uh, uh, tried to use the power of his office uh, in a way to benefit himself politically and not serve the interests of the country. Then it went on to lay out sort of the fact that this is not a moral man. And in the Clinton impeachment, they said CT was very clear. Uh, and uh, at that time, that character and morals uh, mattered, uh, and we need to be as clear now. Now, there has been a whole lot of sort of, well, first I should say there's been a, I've seen a lot of folks praising this editorial. So I don't mean to be a, I don't mean to uh, do what I just said we shouldn't do and give people, uh, put the focus on folks who aren't doing the right thing. I'm seeing a lot of people sort of uh, praising CT. But I do want to comment on on this idea that um, it doesn't matter or it's too little, too late. Look, unlike Eric Metaxas, unlike Jerry Falwell, Christianity Today actually has a mandate to represent the views of evangelicals. They are the flagship evangelical publication. They have a mandate to represent the views of evangelicals. And, And the history books are going to show that a voice with a mandate to represent evangelicals took the stand that they did. And there's precedent for this. There there are articles, there are editorials that CT wrote that we talk about today. Uh, I I go back often and read Dallas Willard's writing for Christianity Today. Or you can go back and read Carl Henry and CT. Well, when the greatest, most influential Christian minds really had something to say, they went to CT. Like that, that was where you made stuff official. And it's because Christianity Today had that mandate. And so I think it's a big deal. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any need 
to get into how heroic it is, though I also wouldn't dismiss the institutional risks and costs and uh, personal costs and institutional costs that go into making a decision like this. But like, I, I don't feel a need to like over hype it. Um, but I do think it's a big deal. Uh, I, and, and for a few reasons, one, the historical record Two, it's going to give institutional cover to pastors and other Christian leaders who feel like with, with great merit, and I know this is something that's also often dismissed, but feel with great merit who say, look, I'm not a political expert, like feel like they need cover and permission from an evangelical institution who has been entrusted that way to speak out. It, it, a very similar effect to, you know, Russell Moore speaking out allowed other people to speak out. Max Licato speaking out allowed other people to speak out. Tim Keller speaking out allowed other people to speak out. CT, it's a, it's a significant move, and it's going to be interesting to see. Watch to see who shares the editorial. And there will be stuff behind the scenes that we won't see, but it'll be a pastor sharing it with his edit, with his elders and with his staff. And staff's making the decision, hey, maybe there's something more that we could be doing on, on this. Maybe there's a more direct message we need to give. And so, look, I don't think like 20 million Evangelicals are going to be reading this editorial and deciding, hey, I'm voting against Trump. That's not the point. CT doesn't, they're not delusional enough to think that that's, that's not their goal with this. But I do think it could have an electoral impact. And in an election that was just decided by 90,000 votes across three states, do I think CT could swing 90,000 evangelical votes? Particularly if we get a nominee who's smart enough to point out that Christianity Today did this editorial as opposed to a Democratic nominee who's afraid that if they reach out to a quarter of the electorate that it will turn off their base or some nonsense like that. Well, we should be thinking about that. We should want a nominee who's willing to reach out to the whole country and willing to uh, willing to think strategically about how to use an editorial from the flagship evangelical magazine calling for the removal of their political opponent. <laughs> and look, and if we have a nominee that is not willing to do that, then they shoulder some of the blame for the outcome of the election as well, just as Hillary Clinton did. And frankly, those of us who are very clear that we're not voting for Donald Trump uh, should be uh, using whatever influence we have to make that clear to the Democratic Party and its candidate. So, 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 so I do think it could have an electoral uh, outcome. But I will say I think CT's primary, and they, they were quite clear about this, I think CT's horizon is a bit longer. And I think it's CT recognizes that politics is affecting culture in a profound way and affecting evangelism in a profound way. Look, uh, I've, I've spoken about this before, is, uh, especially on Christian college campuses. And you, look, we can make all kinds of apologetic arguments for why this should not be the case, and I have, and I will continue to do so. But there's also a deep understanding I have of young people, people, uh, adults that they trust in their life, gave one message on politics 
importance of character, importance of values, etc., etc., when it was Democrats in office or when when there was Republican leadership that, you know, you could say was moral, <laughs> uh, you know, that met a, a bar of morality and, and, and decency. But then to see all those what sounded like really solid core convictions just fall away for, for this guy. I meet young people all the time who are like, I, I started thinking what else? Did they not really believe? What else was just convenient? What else was concocted for some other, apparently some other purpose? And I have all kinds of, again, on one-on-one conversations, I have all kinds of responses to that. Primarily, I told them that their faith was never in those elders or their adults. The commitment they made was to Jesus. And they have to consider whether Jesus has failed them. Or Jesus is faithful, as he always has been. And if so, don't throw away your faith because some adults have disappointed you. There's still the cultural crisis, though. First of all, that that response is only uh, immediately convincing to so many folks. And, and there's a real there's a real crisis there. I would not be bringing this up if I hadn't been convinced over years of travel and meeting with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students and young people and some older folks to CT taking a step like this uh, gives folks something to hold on to. Like, oh, there is a con- there is a Christian voice that is not completely dictated by partisan politics. A Christian voice that is respected that has a mandate to speak for Christians. And I just say, you know, the last thing I'll say here is like, you know, folks ha- have a choice. We, we could, you know, downplay the editorial. We talk about how the fact that, well, you know, Robert Jeffress is still out there. And so until, you know, I don't know, he's exiled. I don't, I don't know what people want. Like, yes, he's going to be out there. He's going to be running his mouth. Uh, my advice would be to stop empowering those folks and to start saying, CT, the National Association of Evangelicals, the uh, CCCU, the Christian Colleges, Russell Moore, the ERLC. These are the people who have a mandate. These are the people who have been appointed, elected to represent the church in public issues. So why are we giving so much authority and so much credence to these shock jocks and these charlatans when we have an institution like CT that is not put on this editorial? And look, I, I know this editorial isn't everything. I, look, I'm just saying, I, I think there are, there are two, there are two points of view here. There are some people who think evangelicalism is a rot. And their criticism isn't just political. They have disagreements with evangelicalism on a whole array of fronts. And they want to see evangelicalism change so that it's not evangelicalism anymore. And like, that's fine. People are, those are disagreements and whatever. There are other people who want to see evangelicalism 
be better <laughs> and they want to see they want to see evangelicalism uh, sort of have a better public witness in in this country if you fall in, if you fall in that camp obviously no tradition is perfect like but, but if you fall in the camp of like the basic thing being like gosh and this is a, this is the thing i used to hear all the time like and you still hear it a little bit today like gosh i just wish White evangelicals would would better sort of white evangelicals would speak up more that that, that there would be a different voice out there. Well, this is a good opportunity. <laughs> like if that's what you've been calling for, well, this is it. You could either downplay it and kind of sweep it under the rug and talk about how it's not enough. It's not exactly what you would have said, and you would have added these five other issues, and you would have changed this paragraph and all that stuff. Uh, I don't think this is the time for that. Uh, there are things I'd change about, about the CT article. Maybe there will be an opportunity where I speak about that at some point. This thing just dropped out. I'm going to say kudos to CT for speaking clearly, for speaking directly, to putting something on the line. All right. We have covered a lot this episode. Before the new year, we're going to do an episode on the state of the race. Uh, I thought it would be a good way to send us into 2020. And then once we get into 2020, we're going to get back to having guests uh, on the show. And I'm excited about some of the guests that are coming up in 2020. We'll go back to bi-weekly. So, so we're, we're, we're full-time back, bi-weekly episodes. Do let me know if you think weekly episodes would be helpful as the primary uh, heats up. And, and that's something we could consider. Until, uh, until next time, this is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. And hey, have a Merry Christmas, all right? This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.